When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains adult language and spoilers for Dune, both the movie and the half-century-old book. So if you don't know what the Kwisatz Haderach is, go out and see this movie in theaters before listening. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm David Sims. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Shirley Lee. Hello. Hi, Shirley. And Spencer Kornhaber. Hi. What's up, guys? I'm doing well. Okay. I, all right. That's, we're, we're already calling this. Um, that, that's that's the, enough we're, of that. We reached our limit of Dune. Doing it. See, it sounds like doing. I'm leaving. <laughs> um, how is everyone doing? <laughs> Shut up! You can't do it again after I've done I it. Know. That's why I wanted well, to do but it I wanted to. right off the bat. <laughs> Everyone's here to chat about Denis Villeneuve's Dune today. Yes, uh, which yes. is burning up the box office, but is also available to stream. Did you guys see Dune in the theater? I saw it last week at a screening on the mm. Warner Brothers lot. With the Animaniacs. At the studio with the Animaniacs, yes. They kept right. barging in. <laughs> they yeah. kept making Dune jokes. They live in the water tower. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Spencer, did you watch it in a theater or did you see it at home? Or yeah, I went to on? a real theater. It, it, it was Amazing. basically my first time like going to the theater, buying a ticket, um, mm. buying a giant Diet Coke and settling in. Yeah. That was, I think, part of the of the total immersive experience that was watching this movie was just like being there the diet coke really helped i'm sure you had warned me not to drink too much liquid uh before because you don't want to get up during this movie and it's very long it is quite long it's two hours and 40 minutes ish it is an adaptation of frank herbert's legendary best-selling science fiction novel from 1965 uh only an adaptation of the first half of that book, really, rather than David Lynch's sort of famed 1984 flop, which is a movie I sort of defend and like, but I can't really say is a coherent piece of storytelling. It does not try to cram everything into the action. It's really just given you part one of Dune. It's titled on screen as part one of Dune, in fact. So what's everyone's Dune background? Who here has read the book, seen the Lynch movie? Maybe seen Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary about a famed failed attempt to make 
Dune into a movie? You know, I was a good nerdy teenager and I and I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy as a kid. And so I definitely read Dune and I think I read all five Dune books by Frank there Herbert. There are six. Six. There's six. I, I think I was like reading the um, Wikipedia summaries. I'm like, yeah, I think I've read these all. But um, like, I really have no memory of, of what happens you in don't them. Have, you read all six and you have no memory? Yeah. Someone turns into a worm at one point. Spoilers right. I just, I never, a much later I, Dune. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, David. I, I maybe ahead. was blocking it out or whatever. It's just like so the books, I think, create their own world. And, and I think I just lived in them as a seventh grader and then left them and never had re- reason to return to them. And so, yeah, I, I can't believe how much I don't remember them other than that I just like was obsessed. As a teenager, I did read Dune. I read the first one and then I stopped. <laughs> Partly because of what you just mentioned, David. I remember there was a cover, you know, that we <laughs> it was all at the library. I was taking, I took the first one out and then I looked at the covers of the other ones and then there was a sequel that had this, um, like a man worm. It had his mm-hmm. face and then the rest of his body is a worm and I was like, oh, I'm not into that. That's <laughs> God Emperor of Dune. The fourth that Dune is the book. God it's Emperor great of Dune. One. Now there's this Massive Warner Brothers, uh, legendary million dollar, yes, production <laughs> with a star studded cast. Pretty much every role in this movie is played by a familiar face. Uh, it's directed by Denis Villeneuve, who made, um, Arrival, he made Sicario, he made Prisoners. Uh, his last film was Blade Runner 2049, sort of highly divisive sci fi sequel. The Man's Ambitious. Do you guys mm-hmm. like Denis? I like Denny. Yeah. Yeah. He's sort of like one of those guys who really knows what to do with scale, in my opinion. Obviously, a lot of Hollywood (laughs) movies have scale. A lot of Hollywood movies have huge budget, but sometimes it feels a little empty. Mm -hmm. And I think Denny usually strives to avoid that. I don't think he's the type of filmmaker that you could argue that about. I've just never really understood that argument. And I've kind of taken it as people being reactive to him having ambitions. (laughs) it's that nolan zone of he mm-hmm. makes films that are relatively humorless i think he would be sure. the first absolutely to admit sure. it uh i in fact i interviewed him about this movie and you know he said like i take science fiction very seriously he he sort mm-hmm. of i think he sort of has a soft spot for the lynch movie too but he was like it's too funny which <laughs> is not a complaint I would make about that movie. It is not particularly funny, but clearly, like even the sort of like little hints of Lynchian weirdness is he's like, no, 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 this is Dune, this is serious stuff. Yeah. When we get to Arrakis, we'll face enormous danger. What danger? Fremen? Desert? Political danger. I, I've seen Sicario and I've seen Arrival. Seeing Arrival in theaters um, was really like one of the best movie-going experiences I've had in, in recent memory. Where you Mm -hmm. just feel like Mm -hmm. you're being sucked into the screen and tumbled around in a washing machine. And (laughs) it's just a total like aesthetic experience. And, and, you know, people use that term ravishing, like, like it's such a corny film critic term. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Denny can ravish you. Denny can ravish you. <laughs> um, he can. I would agree with that. And he has tripled the budget he had on Arrival to play around with here. He's, I feel like, mm-hmm. cr- like or not, this film, you cannot really, you know, it is obviously sparing no detail. Uh, it's a lot of ships taking off and landing. Uh, love that. Love when that happens. People, you know, m- m- massive, you know, uh, amounts of people marching in formation. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. I mean, to be clear, I am such a sucker for all of this stuff. Like this, this is just like my favorite kind of sort of 
sci-fi storytelling. If someone came to me and said, like, you know, that movie was like half an hour of landing and takeoff, I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, dispute it. Like, and you know, and them saying, like, that doesn't really work for me. I'm like, yeah, sure, I understand. But it works for me. It sounds like it worked for Shirley. We're not sure if it worked for Spencer. Uh, uh, yeah. Everyone weigh in. It did, like technically work for me in that I sat in that theater and I felt maybe not like I was sucked in the screen, but maybe like the screen was crushing me into a fine powder. Um, <laughs> nice. And, like yeah. over two hours. And that <laughs> is a compliment. Like you, uh, you know, you, when you go to the movies, you want to feel like something has happened to you. And I absolutely felt that way mm-hmm. over the course of the movie. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like kind of not a movie in, so, in, a, in, okay. in a weird way too. Like it's, it's, <laughs> So we, we'll get into this, but it's half of a story, and it is very, from what I understand, true to the book. And yes. I, I, my sense is that the way in which it's true to the book kind of zaps it of some of the potential it has. I think, it, I think honestly, this movie is a missed opportunity and could have been like the greatest like thing ever. And it's just instead like kind of awesome. Mm. Mm. Can't agree. Okay. Dune rules. <laughs> ten out of ten. Podcast over. <laughs> I all right, all right. say Listen, this. I'll, 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 I, I can go deluxe this conversation. I, I do see where Spencer's coming from because I also, mm. when the film ends, is like slightly more than halfway into the novel. And I think it threw me off. I was like, well, oh, this is the end. When you leave the theater feeling a little bit uneasy about that being the ending, I think it, it, it does detract from however awesome the rest of it is. But I'm also on the side of overall, this film is sublime and spectacular and immersive. Um, but it does have that kind of first Lord of the Rings problem of like the movie ends with everyone kind of looking off into the distance being like more to come. Like our, our journey has only begun. Like, you know, there's much to do, mm-hmm. which I, of course, I remember people slamming Fellowship of the Ring at the time for the same thing. But the Lynch movie, it just stands as perfect representation of why this is the only way to do this. I mean, mm-hmm. At that movie, I really recommend it because it really is. I really do think it's so funny and so cool. I know what Denise thinks is funny. I think it's cool. Uh, I think it's so visually like splendid and like so weird. But also it has whole sequences where, you know, someone will just sort of flash on screen and be like, and then this happened. You know, like you know, there's, there's right. this sort of this sort of panicked pacing where they're like um anyway six years pass uh and someone's gonna get pregnant and someone's gonna die and you're just sort of like i can't possibly keep all of this information in my head you need to slow down but you know in 1984 hollywood Mm -hmm. was certainly not about to be like yeah sure we'll green light a giant budget movie that tells half a story whereas now obviously Mm -hmm. hollywood is very happy to green light anything that has the word franchise attached to it they are like sure there could be lots of these. Great. Let's give it a, you know, let's roll the yeah. dice. Have you seen the marketing around this film that has been be, like, it begins. Seen, no, it's not just, it begins the, the tagline. I've seen like marketing that touts it as the next star Wars, the next Lord of the Rings. Wait, and I'm ooh. like, Oh boy. <laughs> you know, I, I said this to Villeneuve when I interviewed him. It's kind of the problem. A lot of these, I feel like there was another recent example of this where, Dune, Star Wars is so incredibly indebted to Dune and George mm-hmm. Lucas would be the first to admit it, obviously. You know, like mm-hmm. it's a very totemic piece of sci-fi storytelling. It's very old at this point. It's about this chosen one on a strange mm-hmm. desert planet, blah, blah, you know, like Sandworms. lots of bits and yeah, it's well, the worms are special, <laughs> but lots of bits and pieces of it have been sort of scattered through genre storytelling for years. So it's kind of tough to then hit audiences with the 
OG in a lot of ways, yeah. you know, and have it not feel overly familiar. Like that is another part of the challenge. Have it here. not feel generic. This is a slight tangent, but you think about the show that just got canceled, Why the Last Man, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, this that's is, a good example. Yeah, that's like that's an example of a property that was. Hollywood tried to make that for what more than a decade 15 years yeah yeah and that is the basis for a lot of storytelling around apocalypses and post-apocalypses and because we have seen things like The Walking Dead by the time we see something like that show we consider it generic even though it got there first and that's frustrating and I do think that Dune could have easily fallen into this trap of just oh I guess we've seen this before yeah. Um, but I think the decision to split the book up in two is the correct one. You can't do what Lynch did and put Virginia Madsen, you know, yeah, um, on, on camera and have her, yeah, and have her narrate the the backstory here with words that a general audience has never heard before. <laughs> um, that was the first good decision. The second one is that he like he has made it digestible enough. He's excised the right things and he's emphasized the right things. He got an awesome cast to do it who can make a meal out of even small roles. And third, I do think he clearly has a penchant for brutalist designs, right? The look of Arakeen on Arrakis is very based on Blade Runner. And like this is the look that he likes. And there's the sense of history and ancient history and prehistory in, in the set designs and in the in the needle and the gomja bar. Like there's just a weight to it and a seriousness to it that might feel cold to some people, but I think it really works to make Dune not feel generic. It could have been way too familiar. Um, and it's not that way at all because Denis is just like a visual and sonic genius. Like like mm-hmm. everything looks and feels and sounds just fresh. And you're just constantly mm-hmm. being knocked into the sense of wonder and novelty. So from the beginning to the end, it's, it's really an incredible achievement that way. Um, but to this idea that they had to end where they did and this movie had to have the kind of lumpy and bizarre shape it has because it's following <laughs> the books. It's like, Lumpy. what What are we doing here? We're adapting a book that's famously unadaptable. And so one thing mm-hmm. that you do is rewrite the story. Like, you have to find a way to give this, mm-hmm. uh, like, a satisfying sense of a self-contained journey. And I'm not just, like, picking at this. What, what ends up happening in the movie is there's, there's all this buildup to this incredibly moving and tragic turn, the betrayal of House Atreides, and then for the rest mm-hmm. of the movie, it's just Timothy Chalamet and um, Rebecca, Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson running away from stuff. Just hijink after hijink of them just like wandering Spencer, in the desert. are you calling a sandworm a hijink? It is. I mean, I, the sandworm is, is awesome. But they, they kind of, yeah, like, there was a point at which it was like, okay, they're doing another sandworm scare. Like it, it just kind of became a slog with no story. And you can easily imagine a version of this that kind of, speeds ahead and they link up with the Fremen earlier in the movie mm-hmm. and then they have like some sort of uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't really remember You're what just happens. describing like, the Lynch movie. You are describing <laughs> what David Lynch did. But, but, like, That's what, exactly what it does. Do you think that it they needed... It speeds up. Well, <laughs> I would say the huge problem with what you're describing is that like Paul's journey if it's speeded up feels utterly anodyne because he is the chosen one he's the very special boy he's you know this little (laughs) princeling who has been told or hinted at since birth that he's gonna be important and he's got these prophetic dreams or whatever and the problem that the lynch movie has is that 
Paul's triumph feels completely unearned because it just kind of has to bum rush him into mm-hmm. Messiah territory within two hours. And you really feel like you're just watching a movie about a really boring person who turns out to be just as special as he always thought he was, right? You know? Yeah. And what I love about this movie, and I love lots of things about this movie, but the thing I think it drills down to the best is it understands how dreadful Paul's situation is. Like, yes. to be told, like, not just that you're special and, you know, to have, like, the weight of leadership and all, you know, all this sort of stuff that's being thrown on him from youth is kind of like this weird sort of blessing curse situation. But beyond that, the what, what the movie is kind of underlining is this boy actually does sort of have prophetic powers. He does sort of see the future and he sees a future that is terrible. I see a holy war spreading across the universe like unquenchable fire. A warrior religion that waged the Atreides banner in my father's name. Even if he is the hero of it, all that lies ahead is more war and gamesmanship. And so I love how much Villeneuve is sort of investing in that versus mm-hmm. trying to manage it into a sort of compelling like one movie arc. The, the thing that people would say, I think, is like, well, wh- why not just do a TV show, right? Like, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was always sort of the, the default answer for the famously unadaptable works, your, your Watchmen's, mm-hmm. your, you know, like these things that your people thrones, loved. Yeah. Your wives, Exactly. But your they were like, but it would never work as a movie. Problems. And... <laughs> The answer to that is that because the TV version would probably be like all TV now, it would be super annoying. This <laughs> movie would be okay. Not... The film critic is jumping out. The TV hater, the former TV <laughs> critic and current film critic, is <laughs> jumping out and saying that this movie would be stretched into one season because that's how all television works now. The first episode would literally be like five minutes of plot, and that's how like everyone just approaches these sort of epic TV stories now. I mean. One of the most important and totemic and wonderful pieces of sci-fi literature, Foundation, is on television yeah. right now in this like massively expensive, beautiful production that no one is watching or talking it, about because there's just is far too much and television. They sank so much money into it, and right, it is... it's good. I think it's or it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but no one's yeah. watching it. That's the main Nobody's problem watching. I have. If you stick it on TV, no one's going to watch. So, but you. Um, don't... You don't think there was like a middle ground between going completely into like Lynch overstuffed territory and this kind of strange outcome where nothing really happens in the second half of the movie. Like they couldn't have come contrived like a, a minor climax, uh, like other than it's <laughs> well, like a, it's this silly duel with this like annoying sure, uh, the, g- right. guy that came comes out of nowhere. And it's like supposed to like tell you like that's the button on the movie. Um, right. And, Difficulty is right. Like, where do you like they, they could have kind of have like book. a one like right. the one cute little strike on on the Harkonnens or like like something like there one could cute little strike, strike on the <laughs> you know like like a, like a glimmer of rebellion or so, just something to give it a little bit more of that kind of peak and valley right. and peak this, feeling. Yeah. I agree with Spencer. Like my my issue with the film too is is where it cuts off. It just feels like a bit of a whimper. And that one shot of the the sand rider, the the guy riding the sandworm is supposed to be so awesome and inspiring and you want to like you really want to dive into part 2 and it just mm. it I just feel like it's such a cop out of a line to have Chani say it's only the beginning and and it, you know it just Ugh. doesn't it's a whimper. It do only be the beginning. <laughs> 
Um, but sure. I do, I do think that what we have of Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson, what we have of Paul and Jessica in the desert, is important to this. Like the way the film read to me was. Denis is concentrating on this mother-son dynamic over mm-hmm. everything else, right? Like right. the emotional through line here. You could argue that like Jason Momoa's character, Duncan Idaho, the way that they – the way that he played that scene out is is gorgeous and like again, it's an actor making a meal out of a few minutes of screen time. But the emotional thread here is really between the mother and the son and I think that is pure – Herbert, right? That's why it felt climactic to me. The part that I did not like was the Jamis stuff just getting kind of shoehorned in and then being like, it's only the beginning. Well, don't you think it was a little... You think that that relationship was actually as sketched as it should have been in the second half of the movie? Like, that is the time when they're kind of like wandering around and have time to kill. So like, Mm -hmm. maybe Paul would ask his mom a little bit more about him being bred Mm -hmm. to be the savior of the universe by her. (laughs) Like, you know, like, like it just kind of... He, uh, he lashes out at her, though, and that was carried through the rest of the film, this idea that he's not fully buying what she's selling. And she's also afraid of him well, to a degree, right? Like, Yeah, right. I like, I, I like that tension. T- well, I mean, I mean, she is so mm-hmm. stressful to watch. Like, she is on... <laughs> she really is <laughs> She needs that mantra that fears the mind code because she has, has tried to really do something here which is uh, save the entire universe by uh, breaking the rules and like having a male son and like what like what like you get the hints of um she is uh maybe like a total fanatic you were told to bear only daughters but you in your pride thought you could produce the quizats hadarah one of the most crucial scenes in this film the gum jabbar scene where paul puts his hand in a pain box and one of the elder bene Gesserit witches is testing him to see how much he can resist, right? In the Lynch film, Paul holds his hand in the box. You see his hand sort of burning. It's an intense scene, but uh, mm-hmm. he, he just stays in the room with them. In this movie, Villeneuve is constantly cutting to the door that Jessica is on the other side of, basically yeah. crying, you know, near hysterics. She tells herself the sort of mantra, fear is the mind killer. Like, he is trying his best to write, to like, invest in paul is not just the special chosen one who could lead the universe into whatever but also in jessica is the person who kind of made the choice to have him and right possibly set the universe on a sort of intense path (laughs) and like (laughs) you know like you said she has that sort of yes possibly fanatical faith in him possible total fear in a mistake she's made which mm-hmm. is so much of the tension of Dune is like, yeah, this guy, is he the Messiah? And if he is, is that a good thing? Like, yeah, is that is what he, we want? Is he going to rally everybody on this planet or is he going to destroy the entire universe because people will follow him blindly? That's the tension. And you can't really portray that tension without portraying Paul and Jessica's tension. And the scene that you're describing, the Gamjabar scene, in the book, Frank Herbert does not right what happens to jessica right outside no. that door and so no. that this is a choice of denise's <laughs> I, look i love <laughs> to, frank to, herbert yeah. he does not write women i would say mm. with absolute dimensionality i think you know they've made some <laughs> wise choices to deepen uh uh-huh. jessica's characterization in particular i mean to yeah. be clear like the idea of the bene Gesserit and all that you know all of frank herbert's idea of these sort of like Space you know witches. what is yeah, what if like nuns held sort of unfathomable political power behind the scenes and were also psychic um, and were also sort of carrying out genetic experiments? You know, it's all it's all so inventive and crazy and, and cool. Yeah. But uh, 
Villeneuve's getting to the humanity of it. Yes. Yes. Like, like this movie is all these tropes, and it's like, like how would it feel to be the chosen one, right? Like it's like right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's that is what I like about it, and that's why I'm trying to defend the Paul Jessica wandering the desert thing. Like I I feel the tension in that. It's more so that I feel like the Fremen got kind of the short end of the mm, stick mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. not just because they, they don't have much screen time, but, you know, you're saving them for part two, yada, yada, but it still just feels like barely a tease. We'll cross after dark. That's how the Fremen do it. The, there's the other problem that people talk about with this movie, which mm-hmm. is maybe it's like social implications and the way that it kind of chimes on these white savior themes and, and maybe Orientalist themes. And by leaving the Fremen just on the margins and this kind of shadowy, mysterious people without delving a little more into them, I think that you do end up with a movie that has a little bit of a problem with that stuff. It certainly invites that criticism, and I and I understand that criticism. I I, I don't know. You're you're kind of stuck like between a rock and a hard place here, right? Like if you're going to cut the book in two, which you have to do in order to adapt it, then you're not going to have much fremen. Uh, well, well, you know, beyond beyond that, like if you mm-hmm. compress the story, you have less time to deepen anything, so the fremen yes. will come off as yes. these kind of just exoticized, you know, sort of mysterious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, like, you know, indigenous warriors who understand the planet in ways us, you know, we can't or, you know, like the all, uh, tropes yeah. that mm-hmm. Hollywood adores. And one would hope Dune Part 2 can maybe escape by a little bit better. I don't I don't know. When we talk about issues like the white savior tropes, he has taken out. A lot of the mysticism, I feel like that was kind of not mistakenly added by Frank Herbert. I think he was really trying to say that religion is now just 10,000 years in the future, an amalgamation of all the things ever, you know. Yeah, he but, was kind but, of a far out guy, Frank Herbert. He, yeah. he was a far out guy. And yeah. Denis, Denis kind of was like, all right, we're not going to go too much into this. We are going to emphasize the humanity of this one question. And, and like you the ecological yeah, like, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. The, yeah. the sort of. Well, I mean, um, if we're, uh, Dune is like, like now I'm losing my mind. Like Dune, when you read about Dune's inspirations, it's coming from like Frank Herbert was writing a magazine story about, uh, you know, grass being planted to stop the shifting sands of dunes in Oregon or whatever. Yeah, but he had also Oregon, just yeah. read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. So everyone was talking about the environment and everyone in the news is talking about oil, oil, oil. And you can see how that would be the inspiration for Spice. And Frank Herbert is dealing with like all ideas at once. And that's why it's kind of unadaptable. And that's why I kind of defend Denis when it's like he's only trying to focus on one element here. There's an ease to this film. Although, again, I mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will say mm-hmm. I've, I have friends who know very little of the source material who have already reported back to me that they were very charmed by the movie. They like the movie a lot, which is sort of interesting because <laughs> when I watched it, I it's was not like, a confusing wonder, movie. Right. I was like, no. I wonder how this will go over to people who don't, you know, know who the Kwisatz Haderach is or whatever. Like, you know, will, will, is it lobbing too much jargon at you or is it sort of the right amount? And it does seem like he's threaded that needle. It's the whole, what I love about Herbert is like, it's like both the fall of the Roman Empire and like post World War II, right? It's like mm-hmm. these sort of mm-hmm. like unfeeling aristocrats carving up the universe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in this, you know, like, yeah, Atreides, go over there and run Arrakis for a while you can mine it for spice everyone needs that you'll make lots of money 
so like there's obviously political gamesmanship and what's going on within the movie of like yes they're, they're being set up to fail this is a mm-hmm. impossible challenge them being given this planet to run but then there's also the wider sort of political hubris of like all of these empires thinking they can just sort of like swan into unfamiliar territory and run it and paul mm-hmm. who you know as you say this sort of white savior figure yes like he he has this familiar arc of the outlander who comes in and understands, you know, the indigenous mm-hmm. people in yeah, a way. He, he, and like, you know, and like dances with wolves. He's Lawrence of Arabia. The last samurai, all these things. Avatar, obviously oh, <laughs> a yeah. huge one uh, in which uh, a white guy literally puppets the body of an alien. <laughs> anyway, uh, with his brain, crazy movie. But, uh, but crazy. I do like that Villeneuve underlines here that so much of Paul's mystique has been generated politically yes. by the Bene Gesserit. You know, yes. like his his arc is seeded in this sort of scripted way. On Arrakis, we have done all we can for you. A path has been laid. Let's hope he doesn't squander it. In this universe, the Chosen One, it's not like a Luke Skywalker. Just the Force decided that this family right. is. He, the he's line. the it's one. Like, right. It's like the people, yeah. human beings, conspired to create Chosen Ones. What are they shouting? Listen, Al Qaeda, voice from the outer world. It's their name for Messiah. It means the Bene Gesserit have been at work here. The main question the film is asking is whether this figure is good for humanity, right? Like, that he's the chosen one. And a lesser film, I think, would have just gone down the white savior trope, and it challenges that trope. Or even even if Paul's path is a noble one, which is sort of the conflict of the Herbert books, I feel like it's like, even a noble path will still leave people dead and cities on fire and, you know, like mm-hmm. people at war. Like, even if it's better to have a messiah than it is to have a civil war or whatever, that doesn't mean it's good. And there, there do be worms and the worms are cool. We should, there do we should be worms. worms. Yeah. We haven't even shouted out the worms. Yeah, there's big sandworms. What do you guys think? They're very circular. Unlike they are the very circular. They don't have the three... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think, um, look, I, when I first saw the design of the sandworm in the first trailer, I was like, oh, no, butthole. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if that one makes it in. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pro it staying in, to be clear. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I kind of like the, the way they um, reimagined the worm. I mean, it is just so cool to see this, the, you know, there's the vibrations and the, the sand moves and it's just kind of like a swirl and you're like, where's the worm? Like, where's the worm in this? And then it holds worm on the sign, sand collapsing and the spines of the teeth are, are kind of like revealed. Sifting. Sifting, yeah. And they're like, it's like this really, um, I don't know, like, it's like, what kitchen tool does that remind me of? Some, 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 some sort of like, <laughs> some sort of very satisfying moment in cooking. <laughs> Uh, happens there when the when the sandworm's teeth actually show themselves. Yeah, yeah. For me, like I said at the top, I was so thrown off by that book cover with the man-worm hybrid. And the design of this worm didn't send the types of revulsion that I feel. No, because they're other... also supposed to be like dignified, yeah. like, yes, exactly. like powerful creatures too. And you get you do get a sense right. of that. Exactly. There's you're Shine supposed look. to revere them. And so and this I felt more reverence than revulsion, as I was saying. 
I think Villeneuve is good at that. I mean, that's sort of the yeah. power of Arrival, right? He's very good at communicating. Reverend. Yes, uh, like through silence and through very magisterial photography, like the power of that spaceship in Arrival, the sort of like bean-shaped ship and the big yeah. tentacle aliens and all that. And Blade Runner is a movie that I fiercely defend, but like it was more divisive. But like, it's funny that that is also a movie all of his movies have these inscrutable protagonists who are trying to understand themselves and like (laughs) are very emotionally closed off they have visions timelines fold together yeah it's an arc he seems to be drawn to again and again yes which is a very old like you know the 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 strong and silent you know put upon whatever but it's like you know in 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 Arrival, it's Amy Adams, and so it's like mm-hmm. this woman, and here it's Timothy Chalamet, who is this princeling. a queer icon, even though he's allegedly... This skinny little <laughs> princeling. <laughs> our, our pal Timmy Chalamet. Uh, his casting made so much sense to me, and I think he pulls it off, but like, what do you yeah. guys think of Timmy? For one, he can read as a 15-year-old boy. Uh, which totally. is, yes. you know, obviously it's tough to get a super talented uh, actor of any, like, who can... He's very boyish, but he does have, you know... A little bit of gravitas. Yeah, I thought Timmy was really good for most of the movie. He he really does convey the sense of like, oh my god, everyone wants thinks that I am going to save the universe, and I just want to like watch my little film books about um, <laughs> about, <laughs> right. about 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 desert ideas. You know, he seemed very. You know, you also get the kind of like formidable warrior side of him even though he you know physically doesn't scan as that but like that scene where mm-hmm. there's the assassin little bee um yeah. that comes from him uh, in his chambers he kind of like the silence and the kind of cat-like yeah. way that he holds himself is really cool to watch um you know mm-hmm. the, the, later in the movie there's the statement of ambition where he's like i you know he he lays out this plan where he's going to become the emperor's scion and i'm like whoa where did that come from like there there is some sort of transformation that happens where he uh, becomes more ambitious or like starts to embrace mm. this messiah idea, and I didn't mm. quite get that in the performance, or I didn't quite get that right. Like something about that was not fully conveyed to me. And Denny, this is his style. He wants to get things across while saying very little, and it, it, he's trying to make this happen, mm. like with mm. the aesthetics of how things yeah. look and, and how how Timmy's behaving. But but still, something didn't quite connect for me with like whatever transformation was happening towards the end of the movie. I, I can sure. see that. I can see that. And it and, and it required Timmy to do a lot more of the heavy lifting. It's okay. a tough role. It's a it's a tough role because he's not a particularly lovable person, Paul Atreides. We don't really root for the special little boy, I feel like, or it's tougher to root for. Mm-hmm. Uh especially the special little boy who is the heir to an empire, blah blah blah. <laughs> like it's one thing when you're Luke Skywalker and it's like, you know, George you Lucas. You weren't spoiled from the there. beginning, yeah. Right, he yeah. lives in a, you know in a, on a farm, a moisture farm. If we're gonna, you mm-hmm. know, if we want to get detailed, you know, like um, but and he wants what we all want, which is to escape and be free, and you know, like he's he's got very relatable problems, whereas Paul's problems are like, oh, you know, my sorceress mother and my my <laughs> aristocratic father have a lot of expectations for me. Yeah, I think this is what I'm trying to get at. I think like again, Denis has to make really difficult choices here because so much of this development in him comes from within, right? So many of these characters, you learn about them in the book via their internal monologues. They yes. think so much. The Lynch they, film they, has a lot of voiceovers yes. to deal and, with that. And Lynch's voiceovers are all like this ASMR, like 
spice. You know, like they're they're thinking out loud. We hear their voiceovers and they're all whispery. Oh, okay. I'm never watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> like that is a turnoff. Go on. <laughs> this film couldn't do that. So it really does just come down to Timothy's and Rebecca's performances in particular to convey this tension. So so what I'm trying to say here is that Spencer, I see where you're coming from when you feel that that the back like final act of this film does lose some of its power. I don't know how else you approach it though. I don't want to fault Timmy too much for it. I think yeah, it's more about the, no, he's, the shape he's of the pretty movie. Good. Yeah. He's good. He is good. Proud of you, Timmy. Yeah. Proud of Timmy. Uh, the Gondomar scene, I think he plays brilliantly. Oh, that, totally. that, that, that's like the crucial scene. The big yeah. look he gives her midway through and the music shifts and Chills. all that. Like I I I so love good. the dynamic there between him and Rampling. You inherit too much power. Well, because I'm a Duke's son. Because you are Jessica's son. You have more than one birthright, boy. The voice, their sort of magical ability to command people, but just by talking to them like this, like, um, uh, is such a creepy power. So good. That is that just that that sonic effect. So good. So so good. Freaky, especially in a theater when you are being pummeled. Oh yeah, no, like you should not. You should not watch this movie on anything less than you could watch it with headphones or Mm -hmm. a movie theater's sound system, but otherwise. No, like you need no, to hear I'm, like all the range of that of that voice. You dismissed my mother in her own house. Come here, One of my favorite sequences in the movie is when they're using the voice to escape from the Harkonnen kidnappers, you know, and they basically have mm-hmm. these guys, you know, kill themselves and jump out of the ship and all that. And then Jessica kind of is like, "You didn't have your pitch quite right." Like the weird, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. sort of kind of relatable motherly uh, thing, yeah. but to this like very, very kind of alarming display of power. Like I yeah. I that. like how straight Villeneuve plays all of that, that mm-hmm. you can both relate to it and also be pretty unsettled by it. That was absolutely my favorite scene. And I watched it's it before this scene. podcast to hype up. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your pitch was too forced. The brutality of this movie though the 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 brutalism is beautiful way more than whatever the previous adaptations had imagined it like i haven't seen the documentary on jodorowsky's dune but i have seen the concept artwork and that was leaning way more into body horror that was leaning more into like how far can you take your imagination with this book right the harkonnen castle was going to look like a skull and the uh the ships were going to land on this tongue that comes out and then you know you get like sucked in it's freaky and you know all the buildings look like hr giger's design for alien which you know then that same team moved on to that movie but but this doesn't look gross this looks beautiful that was the 70s. Obviously, doing brutalism basically at the height of brutalism would have been hard. You know, like that was the, that mm-hmm. ref- the Jodorowsky approach sort of reflects his his outlook. You know, Lynch's yes. approach is a little stymied, <laughs> but he's very it's his sort of dreamy logic. Like, you know, the best stuff in the Lynch movie is like the guild navigator, these big alien creatures, yeah. you know, and the floating <laughs> in the tanks and the crazy sort of uh, water of life sequence with the flashing hands and all that. You know, like that's where Lynch finally is sort of cutting loose and it's there's other parts of the movie where it feels like he's hamstrung by budget and hamstrung Mm -hmm. by hollywood expectation or whatever this is fully clearly denise's vision i know you're pregnant you can't do that i bet you know that it's only been a few weeks we should wrap up soon but um i did want to ask more sequel questions we talked about 
Paul's journey. You guys must know that, of course, there's a crucial character called Alia, Paul's sister. Another reason this movie had to cut off (laughs) midway through the book, because I remember in the Lynch movie, that is the wildest part, is that you have voiceover just be like, and then, uh, yeah, Jessica Uh also had a daughter, and the daughter, uh, because of various reasons, she was like sort of super intelligent from birth, and you know, like, it has to explain a basically a little six-year-old girl who talks like a grown-up. I have no idea how you pulled that off. That seems like the biggest challenge ahead. I have no clue either, and I I actually, you know what, I hope they don't do even though this worked in the sci-fi miniseries they aged up these characters in the later books who are also this you know sophisticated as children whereas yeah it's it's little baby alicia with uh, (laughs) yeah i hope they don't age her up so significantly but i also don't want to see like a a cgi baby a renesme from twilight (laughs) Right. A Renesmee. Here's the thing. She is supposed to be unsettling. So I guess you could make the argument that if you do it as CGI, boy, you will horrify your audience. No, you but can't that's do also it as CGI. not Villeneuve no, doing. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. Do you guys, as we wrap up, have an MVP from the movie, character, actor, whatever? <laughs> uh, I do want to shout out. Liat Keen's uh, one of my favorite characters in the book, oh, who's yes. played they uh, you know who's uh, played by Max von Sydow in the Dune movie, but played by Sharon Duncan Brewster here, who mm-hmm. is so good, magnetic, and right has so much like integrity and gravitas, which is like so crucial to a movie like this that's sprawling and has a million characters and kind of like people really need to impress their personality on these short scenes Mm -hmm. but her whole arc in this movie and her big final line and you know uh, falling into the worm and all that there's appropriate reverence there i loved her i love her job title judge of the change like that is that is heavy metal dr leah kines imperial ecologist been here 20 years it's centric from what i'm told uh, this is not my favorite character from the book. I remember disliking this character very much, but I really liked Stephen McKinley Henderson as Thufir Hawat. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> his umbrella, his little umbrella, his little parasol that he takes out while he's gazing out at you know the you know the factories, whatever that was left to them by the Harkonnens. Um, I mean, Thufir Hawat is the mentat, right? Like he's this character who's supposed to be able to calculate anything. He's the human computer. He's also this immensely talented strategist and. Stephen McKinley Henderson just <laughs> play. He's doing the job, but he also like when I see him on screen, I'm like, I would want him on my team. I like his little parasol. He does a lot with maybe what three minutes of screen time total. Yeah, he's competent, but he's also cuddly. Young master, how does it feel to walk on a new world? Exciting, to say the least. He is in charge of security, and uh, in the end, that is a major fail. Well, he he is betrayed by internal, (laughs) you know, traitors who give away the, you know, (laughs) what do you you call it? The codes to their force fields and all that. Anyway, that is a really good pick for MVP. (laughs) Spencer, what about you? Uh, My pick for MVP is Explosions. Uh, Explosions (laughs) get such a bad rap in Hollywood today. They're just overused all the time in action movies. And the explosions in this movie are just so cool they feel more like a kind of like a liquid event and i don't i don't mm. know anything about special effects so maybe like david Shirley, you, you could explain what exactly is happening with these explosions but like just all the pyrotechnic stuff it just wakes you up and it's mm-hmm. combined with the incredible sound design that happens throughout the movie and there's just like 
just just the bass lines from hell that are um, mm-hmm. coursing through you. And I'm just like, yeah, for the first time ever, I'm like, I need more explosions in this movie. It's what I'm talking about with scale, where like, I, I'll see a lot mm-hmm. of movies that have many explosions in them, but they <laughs> uh, feel weightless and they don't really have any sort of, you know, destructive force. Whereas, yes, I do think Villeneuve is very good at communicating that in the proper way. You know, he values practical effects, which is more expensive. And not that this movie doesn't have CGI, but it does have a practicality and a tactility that is pretty important Mm -hmm. to its Mm -hmm. overall success, I would say. You know, on the subject of visual effects, the shield design I really liked. So cool. So cool. Yeah. So cool. It was coherent. It didn't look like Minecraft the way that it looked in Lynch's version. Um, And these shields made those explosions perhaps feel kind of fluid for you, Spencer. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was part of it, but it's the, yeah, it's like it vibrated. The like fritzing effect of the shields, Mm -hmm. like with the explosions, it is just like really creates this dynamic feeling and just your eyes are never bored. Yeah. Often when I see advertisements for films that are like experience the movie in IMAX, I'm like, okay. But, this <laughs> but with is this one film, this, yeah, this yeah. is one where it's accurate. You you feel, <laughs> as you said, the, the baseline from hell. 100%. Uh, yeah. Well, we could talk about Dune all day. I could talk about Dune for weeks, to be honest. But I do think <laughs> we should wrap up. Thank you guys for joining me on this journey through time and space hell yeah my fellow guild navigators (laughs) let's fly back in a few years Look, Denis says he's ready to start shooting summer 2022. Uh, the spice must flow. Yeah. That does it for the show. This episode of The Review was produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm David Sims. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, David. Thanks, David.